in this way, and we're so looking forward. Oh, thank you. Yes, recording in progress. Um, so grateful to, um, uh, to be able to do this, but we are looking forward to being able to be back together again. And um, for those of you who have never been to our own building, um, and uh, it's, it's a narrow space, long and narrow, very compact, and um, so we're very hesitant uh, in times like these to uh, to just everybody gather and push in to here, and even in our other space, uh, which is a little more airy and so on, but still presents its own challenges. So we think it's probably best to just do this for, well, a couple more weeks, maybe. We'll see. We'll go week by week uh, and uh, let, let people know. Yeah, but let's be praying that New York City is safe and we're safe and uh, we can gather again together. Amen. Um, Hopefully you've received the uh, order of service uh, bulletin, send it out. And if not, um, I don't know, maybe we could put a link in or I'll let somebody else handle that while I'm talking. I didn't think of it beforehand. Uh, we go through the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, last week was, uh, was the Lord's Day one with the famous question about how might I have comfort in life and in death that I belong to Jesus. And he's so fully paid for my sins. It's, as Nick, I recall, encouraged people to memorize that. It is really worth memorizing. Um, the second question asked last week, well, what do I need to know so that I might benefit from what Jesus has done? And uh, the first thing we need to know is about the misery of our sin. And we learn about that uh, through the law of God. And that's, let's look at the Heidelberg now. You'll find it there uh, printed. Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us in this, in, uh, Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Next question. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Uh, every time we go through the Heidelberg and we get to that third question on Lord's Day 2, I always figure people go, oh, what? <laughs> I am inclined to nature by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Now, they don't say, you know, dislike or, you know, be a little wary of to hate. And, and that, is, um, uh, that is indeed the, the kind of uh, uh, where we have landed as uh, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Um, because, uh, as Jesus just defined before then, that, you know, what is the law? It's to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. And if we're not doing that, then, well, we hate them. That is that we don't care about them. We're not loving towards them. We're not loving towards God if we're rejecting all the things that he says about who he is and what he asks and how it is to truly live a human life. And if we're not loving our neighbors, we love ourselves, then we're more inclined towards our own pleasure, our own satisfaction, our own ease than we are our neighbors. And that is not a loving posture. Um, so uh, it, 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 the law of God, God gives us so that we might truly understand who God is, who we are, how we're supposed to live. And, uh, and that is something that, uh, as we were first created, would have felt so natural to us. 
It, it would have felt just as it ought to be. Uh, but then when sin enters in, now it is that we have a problem with it. Uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, when all things are summed up and, and we as believers in Jesus stand in the new heavens and new earth, the law of God will seem wonderful, delightful, and it will be our joy. But right now we go, eh, I don't know. Wow, that's an awful lot to ask of me. I don't feel like that. Well, that's why we, we have the law in order to point out uh, just, it, well, it shows us just why it is that we need the work that Jesus has done for us, which the Heidelberg will go on to explain and how we respond to it and um, uh, all the benefits that come from it. Uh, it does so warmly, it does so pastorally, but it sets the tone at the very beginning. We're sinners. We're sinners because we learn from the law of God that we, we sin. And, and because we sin, that comes out of a place of not loving God, not loving our neighbor. So you know, let's keep our ears attuned. And, and may the Holy Spirit uh, use the Heidelberg to help us to explore. Um, that is what we, what we confess, what we believe, help us to explore about who God is, who we are. Um, it is a very useful, helpful uh, tool to that end. Let's begin our call to worship shall, uh, with uh, our order of service, with our call to worship, shall we? You'll see that printed in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Lord, this uh, setting things right as they ought to be, which this psalm reflects, uh, Lord, is something that we desire deep within our souls. Frankly, all human beings desire deep within their souls that things ought to be as they ought to be. And Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you are the God who will indeed set all things right. And so we pray that as we uh, worship here today, as we uh, hear uh, your word spoken, as we hear your, the truths of, of your gracious salvation, Son, um, as we humble ourselves in prayer, in all these things, gracious God, we pray that you would make yourself known and that through that, God, our, our assurance, our confidence in, in who you are and what you are about in the world will be strengthened, will be deepened. I thank you for every person that's joined us here on our Zoom link. We ask your, your great blessing upon all of us so that each one of us, no matter where we are, uh, will we'll know, God, that uh, you have spoken to us today. And so we give you our hearts and our minds, and we pray indeed that you would create in us a deeper love for you and a deeper love for our neighbor. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Andrew has prepared for us uh, our hymns today, and the first will be Holy, Holy, Holy. going to now confess our faith together and that last hymn ending with God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This is a, uh, a Trinitarian creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the doctrine that the church fought for at one point when it was being challenged as to the true nature of God. And um, so it's good that we remind ourselves uh, of this uh, to confess it for ourselves, but also to realize that this is something that uh, the church uh, invested, fought for, argued for, that this is indeed the Orthodox Christian faith. So join with me in confessing the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, all the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. 
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of, be of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Lo, he comes with clouds descending.
Amen. Amen. That is our prayer that the Lord would come and come quickly. Praise be to God. We pause each week for a few moments to confess sin. We do this because, well, as we learned in our Heidelberg Catechism, uh, this is the way in which we move towards the, the comfort that is offered to us in Christ. Uh, it is part of the good work that God is doing in those whom he has called to himself to actually make us more like Jesus, to experience more and more what it means to walk in freedom and liberty. And so it's good that we, we pause together each week to confess sin. We're going to do this in two ways. The first is with this corporate confession, which we will pray together. Then there'll be a time of silence. And um, in that, we trust the Holy Spirit will be at work. And perhaps something we have said or done or, or thoughts that we entertained uh, uh, beyond just something that was fleeting. Um, God knows all of these things. And, and so we... We desire that through our corporate confession and our silent confession, that, um, that God would be at work through the Holy Spirit to transform us, to change us. And we, we feel that conviction and we repent. And then coming out of that, we will pray the Lord's Prayer together. So hear this word. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. To that end, join with me as we pray this corporate confession. O King and Father, your son died and was raised up in power. Now enable us to die to our sin in repentance so we may rise to new life in him. We confess to you, Lord, though you should guide us, we inform ourselves. Though you should rule us, we control ourselves. Though you should fulfill us, we console ourselves. We think your truth too high, your will too hard, your power too remote, your love too free but they are not. And without them, we are of all people most miserable. Now heal our confused minds with your word. Heal our divided wills with your law. Heal our troubled consciences with your love. Heal our anxious hearts with your presence, all for the sake of your son who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Now a few moments in silence. Lord God, what a tremendous gift those moments of silence are to know that despite our having uh, gone against your will, transgressed your law, that we have means by which we might still have access into your presence, to experience the love of our Heavenly Father, to know of his care for us, desiring that we would experience life as it was meant to be lived and and flourishing and growing and, and joy and, and peace so we thank you we thank you god for all that you have done to purchase this time that we spend together corporately and individually uh, praying confessing our sin acknowledging our ongoing need of you your transforming grace in our lives 
So we give you thanks, and Father, we ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness uh, for the things that we have thought or done or said uh, that grieve you and, and, and ought to grieve us. Uh, so, Lord, we, we look to you to continue to please, to continue to work in us, and creating us a, a deeper distress over our sin and a greater desire of the word to walk in righteousness and holiness. Uh, this we pray and do so in the name of Jesus. Join me now as we uh, pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hear this good word of assurance. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Praise be to God. Let us love and sing and wonder as our response hymn.
Thank you, Andrew. It's good to have you with us, even though it's recorded, just in case you didn't know it was recorded, you probably noticed this is something that had happened last year at the beginning of our time over Zoom in the pandemic, that, that Andrew's outfit would change throughout the service. He's not actually running the different rooms. He just recorded it during the week, but we're so glad to have him here. Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have a hard copy of the Bible, but whether on your phone or even want to look it up on your computer, I do encourage you to open up these passages. We always have three scripture passages that we read out loud, usually, including today, one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospels, and one from somewhere later in the New Testament. Today, we begin um, a two-month, at least an eight-week series on the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1 through 3. I'm going to mention this a couple of times this morning, um, but I encourage us as a church over the next two months, let's be reading and rereading Revelation 1 through 3 together, these short letters to seven churches, starting with Ephesus next week. Our two passages before we get to Revelation 1 today um, are very important for understanding what John, the writer of Revelation, is doing, and, and if you pay attention, which is one of the reasons I want you to open this and look at it with me, is many of the details of John's vision of the risen exalted Jesus in Revelation 1 that we're going to look at in just a moment are influenced by these passages in Daniel and in Matthew. And so we're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. This is one of the most significant influential passages in the entire Old Testament on the New Testament. Jesus, more than anything else throughout his ministry, referred to himself as the Son of Man, and that phrase ultimately comes from this passage. I'm going to um, do a slight improvisation here, a slight audible at the last moment. We're actually going to start a few verses earlier in chapter 7. In the bulletin, it says just verses 13 through 14. Let's back up to verse 9 and start there because um, John alludes to something in this vision. So starting in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was like pure wool. We're going to see that show up in Revelation. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. For those of you who are not that adept at math, go do that math later on. 10,000 times 10,000, that's a lot of servants before God. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And here are the two verses that are so influential for the way Jesus understands himself and is presented by the apostles in the New Testament. And then I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, we just sang a hymn that references that there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Jump ahead just a few chapters to chapter 10. 
Just going to read a few verses from here. But this vision that Daniel, who this book is named after, receives in chapter 10 is particularly significant for how John presents Jesus in the book of Revelation. So starting in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was also named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he, understand, he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing down on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris River, I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. And his body was like barrel and his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a great multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw this vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. That's how overwhelming and awesome this is. And so I was left alone. And I saw this great vision, but no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. But behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling up on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you have set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, that's where it ends in our bulletin. Going to improvise audible one more time very briefly. Jump down to verse 17 in this same chapter, because this is going to help us understand the vision of Jesus that we see. Daniel asked this kind of classic dilemma of when God appears to his people in his holiness, in his awesomeness, in our finiteness, in our sinfulness. We have this sense, like Daniel does, of we can't stand before this figure. And so Daniel asked the question in verse 17, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. I have been undone by this encounter with this figure. But again, one who had the appearance of a man, a son of man, touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh, man, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong, be of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and I said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Okay, let's jump ahead to the Gospel of Matthew. This one will be very, very short. This is the famous scene of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. We're just going to read the first eight verses. This is when Jesus goes up on the mountain, along with Peter and James and John, and his face is transfigured in God's presence. This is also alluded to in our passage in Revelation 1. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. Literally in Greek, it's where we get the word metamorphosis from. He was metamorphosized before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Very similar to Daniel's response. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise, have no fear. The same pattern we saw in Daniel 10. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Finally, our main passage for today and launching into our new sermon series, Revelation chapter one. This is the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter one. And we're just going to read the first chapter, and then we're going to spend the next two months looking at chapters two and three in particular, the letters to the seven churches. So Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, which today is Turkey, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. We just sung a song about that. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter in the Greek alphabet, the last letter in the Greek alphabet, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, just like in Daniel, it was I, Daniel. Here it's I, John, your brother, your partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That is Sunday, just like us right now. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And that's what the book of Revelation is, ultimately, these 22 chapters, and send it to the seven churches. And here they are, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. The next seven weeks, we're going to take one week for each of those seven churches. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, here's what I saw, seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of these seven golden lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. We heard that in Daniel 7 about God in Daniel 7, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like furnished, burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, it was like the shining of the sun in his full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And yet he laid his right hand on me. And he said, do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you just saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I encourage you to keep this passage open. We'll be looking at it over the next few minutes, but let's begin by praying. Father, even in the midst of this pandemic and not being able to gather together in person, um, which probably uh, among many other things just gives us the experience this morning of, of a bit of unreality, a bit of, at the very least, I would guess for most of us being underwhelmed compared to when we actually get to gather together and be shoulder to shoulder and see each other's faces and hear each other's voices and, and, and just experience the presence of one another and through one another, your presence in a way that we rarely experience when we're just on our own in isolation, that especially this morning as we can Consider this vision of Jesus, who is not only um, certain ways and not other ways, who is not only holy and mighty and merciful, but who is meant to be encountered, who is meant to be experienced, who is someone present with us that we are to fall down before in reverent fear, in awe, in love. Um, I, I'm just so aware that that the the circumstances in which we encounter and experience this this morning are, are so not ideal. And yet we pray that in whatever form it looks like for each of us as we are dialing into this service over Zoom, over our phones, over our laptops, over our computers, we pray that we would not only see you in an intellectual sense for who you are, but that we would encounter you that we would experience you as Daniel experienced this one like a son of man, as John did, and as he says at the beginning of the book, as the entire world one day will, we pray that through your spirit, now on the Lord's day, that we would encounter this figure, this, uh, this son of man, this crucified and risen Jesus, and that you would transform us and, and change us, both in knocking us off our feet, but then in raising us back up with comfort, with love love in the same way that Daniel and John were changed in these stories that we read about today. We pray that that encounter, that experience would happen through your spirit as we listen to your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. So as we get started on this new series, I've already mentioned it once, I'll mention it again. Really want to encourage us over the next couple of months, let's read and reread Revelation 1 through 3 as a church. Let's get to know this vision that we heard out loud now that we're going to spend our time looking at over the next few minutes. And then the seven churches, which begins with a short letter to Ephesus in Revelation 2. That's where we'll pick up next week. Let's really get the, 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 the rhythms, the language, the imagery of these chapters inside of us over the next two months. Um, let me begin just with a sense of why are we going to spend the next two months in Revelation 1 through 3? What are kind of the goals that we're going to go after? And, and let me begin with just saying what the goal is not. Um, the goal is not to understand the book of Revelation overall. Um, I've often heard it said, sometimes jokingly, that there's two kinds of Christians. Christians who are abnormally fascinated by the book of Revelation and can't stop talking about it, and Christians who are bothered and dread the book of Revelation and never want to open it up. I probably lean naturally a little more that direction. Um, John Calvin, this is a, the only book of the Bible he never wrote a commentary on or preached a sermon series on. In our kind of culture today, many Christians are very obsessed with this book. This, ser this sermon series is not about the book of Revelation, really. All of the stuff that Revelation is most famous or infamous for the apocalyptic imagery. It really picks up in chapter four and then goes to the end of the book in chapter 22. We're not going to do that. Another day, another year, another time in the future, Lord willing, we'll come to it. It is a book that is worth studying. I don't mean to say that, but the goal is not really revelation per se. The goal is what all seven of the letters to the seven churches end with, which is a call to hear what the risen Jesus is saying right here and now to the churches that belong to him. My main goal is that as we move forward in the future, as I think has been true of Neighborhood Church in the past, and is still true now, that, that we would strive to be and to always grow to become even more a church that is able to hear to discern what Jesus is saying to us through the spirit. And so there's a sense in which the, the main goal of this series is not even anything in Revelation 1 through 3. It's not Ephesus or Pergamum and Thyatira or Laodicea, all these churches that, that maybe sound familiar, maybe don't, even though we will go through them to get to the goal. The main goal is that as we move forward in the days and weeks and months and years and decades to come as a church, that we would always be a church that is able to hear what Jesus wants to say to us. And what that requires is some kind of criteria of, do we know what Jesus values? Do we know what Jesus cares about? Do we know what bothers Jesus, what he detests, what he opposes? Do we have a sense, like John, of standing in a place where Jesus is in our midst, and he is ultimately the one with whom we have to do, and ultimately we belong to him? He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is not just someone who spoke long ago through the prophets and the apostles, although he has, and that always remains normative, that always reveals to us who he is, that always limits anything else that we might think or do today. But the danger with that, if not from the high view of the Bible itself, but what it can do is it can make us think that all we need to do is just keep studying the Bible and hear what he said to churches long ago. We also need to be a church that is able to hear what he is saying to us through the spirit today. And real quick, for some of you, that might make you nervous. All we need is the Bible. Why would we need to hear something else, something more, something different through the spirit today? Some of you might be cheering around now. Like, yeah, let's, let's get past just Bible study and actually start experiencing the spirit. 
there's always these two errors that we can kind of lean into. We can just kind of get stuck in Bible study and we kind of have in our minds, here's the stories about John and Peter and Jesus and Moses. And this is what God did long ago, but it's just kind of back there. And now today God isn't really doing anything like he did back then anymore. And on the other hand, we can get so kind of drawn into a desire or into a conviction that we would hear and experience what God says today through Jesus in the spirit to the church, that we forget that it is always at most, at best, uh, an implication, um, an outflow of relevance, of implications of what he has already decisively revealed in Jesus. And so as we move into this series over the next couple of months, there are things that God desires to say that Jesus does say to his churches today through the spirit that is contextualized, that is specific to them and their struggles and their issues. That's not just general. That's not just abstract. That's not just a repetition of the things that he said to churches long ago. And yet, in order to hear it, you need to know what he said to churches long ago. And so as we study these seven churches over the next two over the next two months, one of my goals is that we would get a sense for, oh, in this church, here's what Jesus loves and here's what Jesus opposes. In this church, here were their strengths, here were their weaknesses, not because we're any of those churches, although we might see over the next couple of months that we're more like some of the churches and less like some of the other ones, but so that we get a sense of when Jesus would speak to us today, as we listen, as we seek to listen to what Jesus calls us to be and to do as a church today, what are the criteria? What are the values? What are, what are the things Jesus cares about? In many ways, if you were here this past year, when Kirk and I walked through our core values as a church over a number of weeks, in many ways, that's our attempt to say, we think these are the things Jesus cares about, and therefore, these are the things we want to care about. But we also need to have a sense of what are the things Jesus opposes? What are the things that Jesus detests? And we need to also oppose those things. We need to also detest those things. And so that's my main goal, that we would grow in our sense of, of accountability to Jesus, of a sense of that we belong to him. It's interesting that even though the majority of the next two months in Revelation 1 through 3 are letters to the churches, John doesn't start with the churches. He starts with Jesus. And one of the many things that communicates is that the church is only the church when it understands itself to have its origin in Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to owe an answer back to Jesus, that we are not free. No church is free to just be whatever it wants to be, to just do whatever makes sense to it, to just go with cultural winds, or to let the personalities and the convictions of its members individually or together, or its pastors, to just kind of do that, that a church is ultimately something that exists because of Jesus in Jesus and for Jesus, we belong to him. And, and so we always need to come back to this opening vision. This is who he is. By the way, starting next week, and even this week, as you read these letters, I hope you should notice this, the beginning of all seven letters to each church all begin by alluding back to the vision that John gives us of Jesus here in chapter one, in particular, verses 12 through 16. That's where we're going to really camp out over the next few minutes. Every 
letter begins with Jesus is speaking to you, the Jesus who, for instance, has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, or the Jesus who sees everything with his flames, his eyes of fire, um, the Jesus who has feet of bronze. That's the Jesus who's speaking to you. And so we need to begin this series by really getting a sense of what exactly does this vision communicate. And so let's do that here over the next couple of minutes. Um, there's always a debate when you get into something like the book of Revelation, or for instance, Daniel, which in its second half is very similar to Revelation in his genre, that when you get these very fantastic images, or you get these visions, there's always this perpetual debate, are these meant to be decoded? That is, are we to take every detail that appears visually about Jesus and be like, the bronze feet, that means this, and the flaming eyes of fire, that means this, or... Are they just meant to be sheerly experienced, to just be encountered? That, that is, in, in turning towards explaining it, are you almost defeating the purpose in the same way that when you dissect anything, you, it kind of ceases to be alive? And, and I'll just say this real quick. I think that's a false either or. Like any great painting, it is ultimately meant to be experienced not meant to be analyzed. That's true. But it's also true that if you don't notice things about it, if you don't understand what the significance of the colors and the shapes and the cultural references are, or even the artist's own historical background and the, the situation in which he was painting, or a piece of music, if you don't know anything about music, which pretty much true of me, you're just going to miss a lot as you try to experience a piece of music. And so ultimately, the goal is that we would experience this reality that is depicted to us here. But in order to do that, we do need to understand some of the significance of the details. If you have no sense of why bronze is the color of his feet, if you have no sense of why his hair is white, I think that ultimately you can't experience this the way you are meant to. And so here's the first thing I want you to notice is John, some of you will know this in the book of Revelation, he loves the number seven. There are seven golden lampstands. There are seven angels angels. There are seven churches. Over and over and over, he goes through rhythms and cycles of seven in the book. And biblical writers in general love the number seven. And it's almost always understood, and rightly so, to be the number of completeness, to be the number of perfection, to be the number of fullness. Because in the beginning, God created the entire world in seven days. Therefore, it becomes this number of fullness and perfection. Easy to miss if you're not thinking as we hear the vision of, as we see the vision of Jesus in chapter one of Revelation, verses 12 through 16, but Jesus is described, or specifically, his physical appearance is described in seven distinct ways. First, the hair on his head is described, then his eyes are described, then his feet are described, then his voice is described, then his hand is depicted, then his mouth, then his face, which are seven things. And so this is a, a kind of, in some sense, a full depiction of who Jesus is. And all of the physical appearances have, you could call it spiritual or metaphorical, or analogical, that they all depict his character, who he actually is. Over the next couple of minutes, and Hannah, I'll tell you when to do it. Um, one of the things we're going to do that we probably wouldn't be able to do if we were in person, um, but hopefully we'll aid um, your own experience this morning as we do this. I know it can be hard to endure 
preferred just kind of sitting at home watching all of this passively at times is over the next couple of minutes, Hannah is going to put up on your screen so that you can see three pretty famous paintings of this vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. I'm just going to keep talking as Hannah does that. Um, I'll send out the links to these later if you want to know more about who painted these and the historical background. They're all old. None of them are modern. None of them are recent, but they're all attempts to kind of help us see what John is describing. And so Hannah, if you want to go ahead and start putting those up there, I'm just going to let her leave them up each one up maybe for a minute and a half, two minutes. There's three different paintings. And again, I want you to notice that seven parts of Jesus are described in this vision. And as I talk about them, you might even notice kind of how different right, different painters here describe it. When we are told that he's wearing this long robe, that is a reference to um, the priestly garments of Aaron and the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, that Jesus is someone who, if he's a king, he's also a priest. He mediates God's presence to us. When the sword comes out of his mouth, he's also a prophetic figure, that this is a prophet a priest, a king, that is, that, that he's someone who stands in God's presence and helps us come into God's presence. He stands in God's presence, hears God's word, and speaks God's word to us. And the first thing we are told about this son of man, who's a priestly figure wearing this robe, is that the hair on his head is white which is strange. When you see Jesus depicted in paintings, you don't usually see his hair white. It's usually brown. He's usually a young guy or no more than kind of in his early 30s. But here he is depicted as being really old. His hair is just straight white. And that, as we saw in Daniel 7, is how God, the Ancient of Days, is the title for him, is described in Daniel 7. And just like in Proverbs, just like probably in most cultures in the history of the world, old people with white hair are understood to have wisdom. They are understood to have insight, even though it's probably something that that sets our culture in the West today, apart from most cultures in the world, throughout history, most human beings, and I think this is this makes sense, have always privileged that which is old over that which is new, that which has stood the test of time, that which is ancient, that which comes from antiquity rather than something novel. One of the great critiques of Christianity in the early church when John was writing is that it just seemed to come out of nowhere. It was new. If this is so new, how could this be real? Anything that's real, anything that's true must be old, must have the insight of coming from a long time ago. And we're reminded that Jesus has just appeared on the scene of history a few decades before John writes this, but he is the Alpha and the Omega he is the beginning and the end. He is the ancient of days. Jesus has more wisdom than any other figure. If you don't see that when you look at Jesus, you're not really seeing him. That he is the most wise, the most crowned with experience figure in creation. The second thing we're told is that his eyes are like flames of fire which is a very intimidating, very kind of confrontational thing. And, and, and what I think about when I see that or when I hear that is kind of the depictions in the comic books and in the movies growing up of Superman. The Superman has X-ray vision. And I think that's pretty close to what's being described here. Jesus will be described throughout the seven letters in the next few chapters, just as he is throughout the Gospels, just as he is throughout the letters of the New Testament, as someone who sees what is going on in every heart. As someone who can test 
hearts and minds. Jesus will begin each of the seven letters when he is speaking with the phrase, I know, I know your works, I know your strengths, I know your weaknesses. That Jesus, when we come before him, <clears throat> is someone who has utter, total, complete insight into the things that we keep secret from others, into the things that are hidden behind the masks we wear, even knows things about us that we do not know about ourselves, or at least can't admit about ourselves, that Jesus is someone before there is no secret, the, the one before whom no secrets are hid, and that great old phrase. And if you're anything like me, and I think you are here, that when you are aware that other people are watching you, as opposed to when you're on your own in private, when you're on your own in private, you often relax, and that's not all bad, in a way where you give yourself permission to maybe do things that you wouldn't do, or to think things, or to say things that you wouldn't think or say, if you knew you were being watched by your friends, your coworkers, your family, your spouse, whatever. And what we're being reminded of here is that that is always true of us living in the presence of Jesus. There is no moment, there is no motive of the heart. There is no deed, no thought, no word that is ever given in our experience that we ever engage in with our agency that is not seen with crystal clarity for what it is by Jesus. And by the way, if that overwhelms you a bit, now we begin to get a sense of why Daniel and John fall down before this figure overwhelmed. This is an overwhelming, in many ways, intimidating reminder and experience of who Jesus is. His feet are bronze. This is probably the first one where, where there's really difficult to get a sense in our culture today. What does this mean? If you go back to Daniel and to Ezekiel and many of the prophets where the imagery is taken from, has someone having feet of bronze, and you can see here that it's, it's clarified that they have been refined in a furnace, is opposed to or contrasted with someone who has feet of clay, which is one of those many somewhat random um, one of the many kind of common cliches or idioms that we still use in our language today that come from the Bible, when a figure has feet of clay, it's maybe not the most common one or the popular one today, but you probably heard it, when, when uh, someone who is famous or seen to be very impressive is revealed to have feet of clay, right? Like you never want to meet your heroes because you might realize they're just as broken, just as weak just as flawed, just as compromised as the rest of us are, that is, they have feet of clay. They're vulnerable, they have flaws, they have weaknesses. Feet of bronze is the opposite. Endurance, tested, credibility, strength, consistency. The only thing that I think of, and I think that this goes in the right direction, I don't know if any of you had this experience. I have this vivid memory, even though I don't know where these are anymore, that when I was a kid, and I'm the oldest of three brothers, we're living in this small city apartment. And in our living room, on, on top of this bookshelf, it's maybe six feet, five feet tall, something like that, is all of our baby shoes. Me and my brothers, um, our first shoes that we ever wore, after we outgrew them, my parents had them bronzed. 
And I always remember our feet, our shoes being there bronze. That is that they were just kind of permanently there. And it is like, like bronzed feet means they endure, they last. It's a metaphor for this is a significant figure who has no flaws, no weaknesses. He is not vulnerable. You do not need to worry that unlike so many other figures in history, unlike so many other people who initially seem impressive that you meet in your life or you see in society, and then later on is revealed they were a fraud all along. They were not nearly as impressive as that. That's not true of Jesus. He has been tested and been found to be true over and over and over again, like bronze feet that have gone through a furnace. We should be really impressed by this figure. There are no weaknesses, no flaws in this person. He has a really loud voice. In fact, it's so loud. It's like that of many waters, like a rushing waterfall. And I think that one's pretty obvious, right? That is, it's power. It's impact. It's when Jesus speaks, it's not just this weak, audible sound on the air. And when Jesus speaks, things happen. When he speaks, there's impact. There's change. There's transformation. You cannot withstand it. It is overwhelming. Throughout scripture, God is described as someone who sends forth his word and it accomplishes what he sends it out to do. That Jesus's word, his voice is far more influential, far more impressive, far more powerful than any other voice we might listen to in the world. As we work through the letters to the seven churches over the next few months, we will see that almost without exception, central to what each church is struggling with is the danger, is the temptation to find other voices in the world more impressive, more powerful, more to be listened to than Jesus's voice. And here we are being reminded there is no voice as powerful, no voice as important, no voice as sheerly impactful as the voice of the risen Jesus. It is, as we saw, or, or as we heard in the story of the transfiguration, when you see Jesus for who he is, one of your reactions should be, listen to him. This is the one that we listen to. He has in his right hand the seven stars, which we hear later are the angels and the angels of the seven churches. But here, two things are significant about this. The right hand, as throughout scripture, implies not just power, because most of us are right-handed, not left-handed. It's your strong hand. It's the hand of might. It's the hand that you actually work with. But it also, in holding the seven stars, um, gives a, a, an image of sovereignty, of authority. Here's something that, that, that's always helpful in the book of Revelation, that because the historical context, the background, kind of like a painting, kind of like a piece of music, is so helpful to have insight into why it's being described this way as you experience it. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, we saw this a couple of weeks ago with the story of the Magi. They come to Jesus at his birth, following a star, because astrology in the ancient world for pagans was often the stars were often understood to hold our destiny and our future in their hands, that the, the key to what's coming in the future is in the stars. And the Roman emperor during John's day, that there were coins, common coins that people used on the street that had the Roman emperor's image on the front and on the back, it had a picture of him sitting on a throne holding seven stars in his right hand. That is that the emperor of Rome is not only king, 
but he's the king of kings. He's not only Lord, he's the Lord of Lords. That is that, that he holds the entire future of the world in his hands with authority. And that's not actually true. I assume we all know that about ancient Roman emperors, but Revelation is saying that is actually true about Jesus. He has universal sovereignty over creation. He has absolute authority over the future. That in the the language of the, the kids hymn today, that he's got the whole world in his hands. It is in his right hand. It is not the stock market. It is not the United States of America or China. It is not the West. It is not technology. It is not um, the, the military might of nations. It is Jesus who wields all authority in heaven and on earth in his right hand. That this is a figure of not just immense power, but also authority uh, of sovereignty. A two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. Um, two things about this, this image, like many of the images here, reappears at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes back in the future, his second coming, and he's riding this horse, and this sword comes out of his mouth again. Two things about it. One is that it's double-edged. Two, it comes out of his mouth. It's not in his hand. So the first thing is that it's double-edged. Um, at the very least, what that means, and, and this is what we use the idiom for today, right? A two-edged sword, a double-edged sword, is that Jesus's word in the letters to the seven churches will comfort, it will build up, it will encourage, it will console, it will promise, but it will also cut, and it will also rebuke, and it will also confront and it will also get in our faces. The words that come out of Jesus's mouth with all authority and heaven on earth loud are words both of comfort and affliction, both of love and of challenge. And we are not listening to Jesus unless we experience the sword that comes out of his mouth as being a two-edged sword. Many Christians hear what Jesus says as only ever being comforting only ever being grace, only ever being affirmation. And absolutely, that is central to how Jesus speaks to his people. He does not only speak to us with rebuke or with discouragement or with get your act together or with challenge or with repent, but nonetheless, he does say those things, not just to the world, but to his churches. Over and over and over, we will see in the letters of the seven churches, repent, stop doing that. I hate that you're doing this. I will come and discipline you if you continue to do that. That the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a two-edged sword, not only for the world, but also for his people. But the other thing that's communicated there, so radical, which we will talk about more in the weeks to come, is that Jesus' sword, the weapon with which he goes on the offense, the weapon with which he attacks and exerts and, and puts into um, play his game plan is not a literal instrument of coercion, but one of persuasion. That is that Jesus's kingdom moves through the world, not like Caesar's kingdom or any other kingdom in the history of a fallen world, with power, but rather with truth, not with force but rather with words, that Jesus rules the church and through the church wants to eventually rule the world, not through coercion, but through persuasion with his word, not with his force. That is, Jesus is not, even though he's powerful, even though he's impressive, he is not a bully like Rome was and like most nations that are very strong are. 
Craig Kester, in his great commentary on Revelation, says the imagery of the sword fits the peculiar nature of conflict in Revelation. Christ defeats evil with the force of truth, culminating in the great battle where his sword, his word, is the only weapon mentioned in Revelation 19. In the great battle, Christ will yield the sword of truth against the nations, but here his sword or word first confronts Christian readers, they too are subject to his word, and in subsequent chapters, that includes both encouragement and rebuke. Final thing, and then we'll wrap it up with, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? His face is shining like the sun. We heard another story. We read another story in Matthew 17 a few minutes ago, where Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and his face is transfigured, and it begins to shine like the sun. His clothes become white as wool, and they fall down before him in fear. Maybe you'll remember that when Moses encounters God at Sinai, on Sinai, in the book of Exodus, there are several passages that say that his face became as bright as the sun, was shining like the sun. In fact, later, a little earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, We didn't read this, but the same phrase that is used of Jesus in Matthew 17, his face is shining like the sun. We are told that one day the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is not in and of itself a divine claim. Moses was not divine. We will not be deity in the future when our face shines like the sun. But it is saying that this is someone who stands in the presence of God. That is, this is someone, and the fact that his face is not just shining like the sun, but in full strength of the sun, means that Jesus is the one figure in human history that fully reflects the image of God and can actually stand on his own two feet in the presence of God. And his face is luminous because of that. It is glorious. It is so radiant as not to be describable. Now, not only do none of those paintings actually convey the full force of this, we can't even imagine this in our minds. We don't know what Jesus would have even looked like anyway, but nonetheless, we should have a sense of this is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus that we belong to. This is the Jesus who speaks to us and says, Let those who have ears hear what I am saying to my churches through the Spirit. And so just for the last couple of minutes, what do we do with this? What is the significance of this? Why do we start with Jesus and with who he is representing God? And at the beginning of the bulletin, I have this quote. Let me read it. A.W. Tozer, I think, really sums up the, the significance of why we start here rather than start with who are we? Let's, you know, put, put our finger on our pulse. Let's get a sense of what we want and what's true of us as a church. We start with Jesus, not with us. And one of the reasons, among many, is what A.W. Tozer says in his wonderful little book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea, let's say vision, of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. 
And the most portentous fact about any human being is not what he or she at any given time might say or might do, but what he or she in their deep heart conceives God to be like. When we think about God, when we look at Jesus, is this what we think about? And is this what we see? Or have we made an idol that is more palatable to us, that is more to be preferred, that's less challenging, less prone to confrontation when we're at a step that Tozer says is always the most important thing about us, whether we see God for who he is and actually encounter him that way. And it goes on, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true, not only of individual Christians, but also the company of Christians corporately that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What we're going to see time and again in the next two months is that where each of the seven churches goes astray, they go astray because they have forgotten this about Jesus, or they are not taking into account that this is true of Jesus, or they are refusing to hear that and instead listening to other siren calls in their culture, that coming back to this vision of Jesus, do we actually look at Jesus as if he has more wisdom than any other source in creation? Do we actually look at Jesus as if everybody else has got feet of clay compared to him, that he is more tested and true and impressive? Do we really look at him as someone who fully reflects the image of God and who stands fully in the presence of God? Do we hear his voice as loud and powerful and influential or do we not? That's always, Tozer says, the most important question before every Christian, before every church. Let's end with this, that John doesn't stop with the vision of Jesus. He ends, before he moves into the seven letters next week in, in chapter two, he ends by telling us about his reaction, his response to this vision of Jesus, and then how Jesus responded to his response, which is also what happens in Daniel and also happens in John. It is... Um, there, there's an old phrase in Latin that Christians have often used, quorum Deo, um, before the face of God. And, and one of the things that I, I hope we'll, we'll take away from this is that it is very important, absolutely crucial, that as Christians, as a church, that we think right thoughts about God, that we have an accurate, theologically faithful perception of who Jesus is. But one of the things this scene reminds us of, and it's always there at the beginning of our bulletin, Kirk has mentioned often over the years, the entire way that we structure our order of worship is patterned after scenes like this. In Daniel 10, in Revelation 1, you could add Isaiah 6, you could add many other passages, where, where human beings encounter God or encounter the risen Christ, they fall on their face in some combination of fear and awe, and then God responds by lifting them up, healing them, and sending them on their way changed, that there is a sense in which that's always what we're aiming for by God's grace on Sunday mornings when we gather together, that we as sinful, finite creatures would encounter the holy living God, that we would get knocked on our faces we confess our sins. We hopefully have a sense to some degree by God's spirit of, I am so small and I am so broken and I am so messed up compared to the God that I belong to. And yet not end in despair, but end with this sense of being touched, being lifted to our feet, being told, do not fear, 
You are greatly loved. Peace be with you. Go on your way. Be part of my people now. Um, but, but you can't go straight to that last part. You can't skip the other part. And, and, and so one of the things I want us to take away is that one of our goals as a church and as Christians is not just that we would think right thoughts about God, not just that we would see Jesus intellectually for who he is, but that we would actually experience him like that, that we would actually encounter that. Um, I'm going to quote two different, uh, I'm going to allude to two different ways of talking about the same thing. One comes from the Puritans one co- and long ago, one comes from Pentecostals today. When the Puritans talked about this kind of a moment in somebody's life, they called it God's manifest presence. That is, God is always present everywhere because he's omnipresent and he's omnipotent, but there are moments and times and places where God is manifested experientially so that the people that are there actually become subjectively aware of what is always objectively true, and people fall on their faces when that happens. Pentecostals often refer to it, sorry, Pentecostals refer to it as God's manifest presence. Um, Puritans often called it God's covenant presence. That is that God actually makes himself experientially accessible and known in ways that he is not other times. We must be a church that seeks to encounter God truly and not just think about him rightly. And that's one of the goals that every week as we gather together on Sunday mornings, we want to not just think right thoughts, say right words. We want to come into God's presence. We want to encounter him. We want to experience him as he is. We want to be knocked off of our feet on a pretty regular basis. We're going to see that every area of unhealth in each of the seven churches, and I think you could still say the same thing today, wherever there are patterns of sin in each of our lives, wherever there are long-term character flaws for each of us, it is because we have not regularly encountered this in that area of life. We need to be knocked off our feet by God's holiness and then raised up by his grace again. A.W. Tozer goes on a little later to say this. This is not in the bulletin. The world outside of the church is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God, but the church is famishing for a lack of experiencing his presence. And that's one of the things that John starts with here. By the way, I haven't mentioned this yet. Maybe you picked it up that the first thing John tells us about Jesus is the son of man before he describes any of his physical features is that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That is, Jesus is not just out there. He's not just 2000 years ago back then. He's not just a story in a book. He's not just a remote figure in the distant past. He is someone that every Sunday we gather together, he is here with us. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. It's a way of saying that this Jesus, he is with us when we gather together. He's here right now. And he sees what's going on in our midst with his eyes. He is speaking to us through everything we're doing here through his powerful word. He is luminously reflecting the image of God as we gather together. He is in our midst. And a church that's not aware of that, a church that's not regularly falling down on his face because of that is a church that is going to get off track, is a church that's going to be unhealthy. Annie Dillard, this is also at the beginning of your bulletin. I love this one. Annie Dillard, the great American writer who won the Pulitzer Prize, says this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs, that is in the early church, Christians having to hide from the Roman Empire, worship in secret, like many Christians today that we pray for. 
around the world, but not us. Uh, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. What a great way to put it, that we're so often not sufficiently sensible of conditions. That is, we're not walking in awareness of and encountering God for who he is. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we gather together as the church? Does Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT dynamite to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. I love this image. We should all be wearing crash helmets. That when we gather together on church church every Sunday, we should be wearing crash helmets because we're going to get knocked off of our feet if we encounter God for who he is in Jesus. Ushers ought to issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. This is gonna rock us. For the sleeping God may wake up someday and take offense. The waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. So let me let me end with this as a way to kind of summarize what's going on here. Um, I have often pointed out, I know Kirk has over the years, that one of the great dangers to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great phrase in Western Christianity today is cheap grace, that we skip over who God is, we skip over getting knocked off of our feet by his holiness, and we go straight to he loves you and he pats you on the back and he tells you that everything's great. And we skip the first two stages of sin and of grace, or of sin, and of encounter with his holiness in order to go to grace. And when that happens, it cannot help but to become cheap grace. Grace is not grace without an awareness of your sin and an awareness of God's holiness and majesty and awesome power and glory. On the other hand, it is possible, even though we perhaps might not be as liable to this danger today, to so emphasize the fear of God and the glory of God that Christians become like dogs that were abused when they were puppies. And anytime we come into God's presence, we're just like, I I just feel like I'm going to get smacked again. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm paralyzed, not energized. I am discouraged, not encouraged. It is certainly possible to so emphasize God's glory and holiness without speaking words of grace that you actually begin to dread coming into God's presence, which is always a litmus test that you're not Um, experiencing it the right way. Here's the way I'm going to put it. Christians need to be people, churches need to be churches that are aware of and encounter both the greatness and the goodness of God. If we are only encountering his greatness, which is what John sees of Jesus, and you get knocked off your feet, then you just stay on the ground. If you only experience his goodness, which is Jesus coming to John, knocked off of his feet, and the same powerful sovereign right hand that knocked him off his feet is now touching his shoulder in gentleness and lifting him up and saying, do not fear. If you do not experience what Daniel experienced, oh, you are so greatly loved. Peace be with you. Be strong and take courage. It's going to be okay. You are loved by this figure of great and awesome holiness. Then we're going to go off the cliff one way or another. C.S. Lewis's great phrase about Aslan, he's not safe, but he's good. If we don't have some um, analogical experience of that with God, that he is not someone to mess with, 
but nonetheless, he is for me and not against me, then the Christian life is just not going to work. That this is the figure. We start with the holiness of God. We see and encounter his glory and we listen to him. But then what we see, and this is where revelation goes in the chapters to come, that it is this Jesus who loved himself and gave himself for us. It is this Jesus who laid down his life as a lamb for the world and for his followers. It is this Jesus who comes to us with persuasion and not coercion, even though he could absolutely force us to do his will. It is this Jesus who dries tears from our cheeks. It is this Jesus who cares for us and who says, keep going, keep going, keep going, and and who desires as a shepherd for all of the sheep to come back, that we need to experience and encounter both the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. And so let me just encourage you as we end, not only every Sunday we gather together, that's the pattern that we would come hear and see and encounter God, hopefully to some degree, get awestruck, get knocked off our feet, get disjointed, disoriented, and and become aware again, things are not the way they're supposed to be and fall on our faces. But then Do not go home. Do not leave until we have felt the touch of his gracious right hand on our shoulder, hearing the words, do not fear, you are greatly loved, and then being sent back into his purposes in the world. That is the pattern by which God works in his churches and that Jesus wants to be true for us. And let's also, even on a daily basis, I don't think it should, it it will rarely be as true when we're on our own individually as when we gather together, but we should be seeking to experience God's presence on a daily basis as we listen to his word, as we pray, as we confess our sins, as we come into his presence, not just write thoughts, but encounter with his experienced presence. That is the beginning of the Christian life and something we need to go back to again and again and again. And so let's listen to him. And in the next seven weeks, we're going to get a chance to listen time and again to what Jesus says to the churches so that hopefully we are a church that can continue to listen to what this Jesus is saying to us here and now. And let's pray that we hear that over the next seven weeks. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this vision that John has of Jesus, and I'm so aware as I speak, to some degree because it is over video and we're not together in the room, but most of all because it's me and I do have feet of clay and I do not have a powerful voice and my face is not shining like the sun and my eyes have absolutely no idea what's going on in the heart of every person watching and listening to this right now, that this is at best a secondhand distant representation of what John got to experience directly. And nonetheless, I pray that through your spirit, you would help each of us to see and to behold and to encounter and ultimately to respond to the truth of Jesus that is depicted here, that his wisdom his clarity, his strength, his power, his glory, um, his majesty, his unrivaled uniqueness and 
just this sense that that there is no one more impressive, no one more important, no one more central to reality than this figure is. I pray that not just the the conviction intellectually, but that the experience subjectively that we would encounter that that we would be changed by that and for each of us that rhythm that two-beat rhythm of being knocked off of our feet by how awesome you are but also graciously picked back up and told that we're loved and to experience your grace and to not fear that that two-beat rhythm would be true of each of us. Give us ears to hear in the weeks to come and Lord Jesus give us awareness that even now you are in our midst as your church, that when two or three gather together, you are with us. Give us an awareness of always living in your presence. Let me give you thanks in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, normally, we would have the Lord's table right now, and wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And we have a a meal that God has given to us that holds together this tension of the wrath of God and the grace of God, the broken body of Jesus because of the punishment due for sin, and at the same time to uh, to experience, to take in our hands that which uh, preaches to us the grace, the goodness of God. Amen. Well, we will do that as soon as we are able to come back together again. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer if you would like to have anything prayed for personally, please let us know. Uh, you can send it in an email to us, a text. There's a QR code at the back of the bulletin that you can fill out a form there in which you communicate that. Um, and then that way, those things will be prayed for uh, in our weekly prayer meetings, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, let's come before this all-powerful, gracious, awe-inspiring God and make our humble requests known, shall we? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much uh, for the access that you have given us into the throne that we have a picture of in the book of Revelation, this awesome space that were we in, we would indeed fall down upon our faces, be overwhelmed, and yet we can enter in because of what you have done for us, because you have given to us a righteousness, not our own, because you have invited us in, because you've opened the door uh, through Jesus. And so we might, by faith in him, uh, come into your presence. And, and Lord, uh, you are, as we have prayed earlier already, our heavenly father, our father who is in heaven. And so, Lord, we come to you as children before their father, and yet a father who is in heaven. And so uh, we know that there is nothing that you do not know, that you are not aware of, that you are not able to deal with, uh, and to deal with it with ultimate and complete wisdom and mercy and justice and love and righteousness. So we bring our petitions uh, to you, and uh, we are uh, aware that our petitions can be mingled with self-interest, with lack of understanding. But yet, Lord, I pray you see that as we come and as we pray, we do so uh, with humility and without a desire uh, to, to see you step into these things and to show your hand mightily. 
God, we thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to serve others in our city uh, through this campaign that we hope to launch uh, very soon, our Glove Love campaign. Uh, Lord, we pray for the details of that. And, and God, that uh, this act, uh, Lord, we hope of, of your love, of your grace, of your generosity uh, will, will be able to reach the people who need it. Um, so, uh, Lord, we, we commit the details into your care and the conversations, the, uh, just the sightings, as it were, of people who we think that might uh, need this, Lord, that we put all that into your hands and, and ask God that uh, it would be evidence of your grace, your common grace upon the creation that you have made and the people who bear your image. Um, we want to remember uh, that uh, there are those who are right in the middle of a, perhaps a semester break or other ways in which they have traveled to go be with family that are not with them. And uh, we know in our own family, personal experience of, of those, uh, some who have been held up because of flight cancellations or COVID-related issues. Uh, Lord, uh, this is just something that's part of the fabric of our lives these days. And Lord, we're asking that that would ease, that people could get back in time to uh, go back to work or school and uh, re-engage their, their everyday lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that for those whom we know, and but we know it also affects many others. So uh, God, we, we just put these very much everyday kind of things uh, into your care and because Lord, you are the one who controls all things. And so we are looking to you, God, in your mercy and grace. We want to remember our newly elected mayor, Eric Abrams. Lord, we thank you that we have uh, in our city a peaceful transition of power. A new administration comes in. He brings in people that he's comfortable with, that he knows he has competence in. Uh, Lord, we pray that they all enter into this position with a servant's heart, that they come to serve this great city, their fellow uh, citizens of this city, their fellow New Yorkers that you will give wisdom beyond uh, what they have just innately, that the experience that they are and their education and their uh, agenda, that they are straining uh, their, their, uh, their, their proposals through, uh, Lord, will be tinged with grace and mercy and justice, generosity, uh, Lord, that there will be a, really an evidence of, of taking into account the needs and finding the wisdom necessary to meet the needs of, of our city. And uh, you tell us to pray for those who rule over us. And so we lift up our new mayor and deputy mayor and all others who have assumed office recently that, uh, that God, that um, we could live uh, as Christians and with our fellow neighbors, uh, quiet and peaceable lives. So we pray that you would let them uh, wield this authority, show them how to wield the authority that you have granted to them, that that might be realized in our city. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray uh, because uh, our COVID situation remains and right now is very uh, intense and active in our city and, of course, across the country and around the world. Um, I want to pray particularly as we have come in, to, uh, settling in to winter and shorter days and colder days and people being isolated. Lord, I pray for the mental health of, of 
of our fellow citizens here, that, uh, Lord, that the kind of experience that we went through last winter and uh, that, uh, Lord, we are, as we move into it again, uh, that, God, that there would uh, be a way in which those who are vulnerable in this way in particular will find encouragement, will find relationships, will, will be able to uh, be connected with others um, Lord, for those who are particularly prone to perhaps isolation, God, that uh, that you would, in your grace, just bring someone to knock on their door, to encounter them on the street, to meet them, strike up a conversation in a, in a coffee shop, uh, Lord, whatever it might be, so that, God, that there would be a sense of, of human touch and care and, uh, and uh, Lord, just that kind of need that we have as as those who have been made again in, in your image. So I pray particularly for the, the mental health of, of many of our, our fellow citizens here in, the, in our city. We want to remember that there are those who are doing good work uh, here in New York, uh, that uh, we are so glad to be able to support financially and, and to volunteer with. Um, we think of Hope Academy and Do For One, Bowery Mission, Avail Pregnancy, Expect Hope, Father's Heart. Lord, we pray for these ministries and uh, others like them, but these in particular, uh, that, uh, Lord, that they, their desire to serve those who, who need uh, your care, your love, your attention uh, in, a, in a very particular way. Uh, Lord, we thank you for their embracing that call and and raising the funds and setting up the mechanisms by which what they offer can be done. Uh, we ask God that you would fund them well, uh, put people in administrative positions that know how to do it and get it done, and that God, that they would reach, uh, particularly so many of these represent really vulnerable people in vulnerable positions, that, uh, that God, that that kind of care and protection that you speak about so often in your word for the widows and orphans, that that would find expression uh, through these ministries. And we're grateful uh, to be able to partner with them in prayer, financially, and in our time. We remember, Lord, that you send people out to the ends of the earth to make the gospel known. And we remember Andrew and Esther Schaefer and the Snyders in Europe. Lord, we pray for these who uh, that we know and that we pray for, that we support, and we uh, look, Lord God, as well to uh, that uh, that impulse uh, to find expression, uh, and and the Lord that the continuing need that each generation has for those who will go into all the world, and so we thank you for these who have dedicated their lives uh, uh, for for decades to serving. Uh, serving uh, people in other parts of the world, places where they have gone to that have uh, left uh, perhaps their families and, uh, um, and places of, of, of comfort and, and what they're familiar with to do that work. And so we want to remember to pray for them. And we also pray, Lord, as we said earlier, for those who uh, live in places that uh, it is uh, a fearful thing to confess the name of Christ a gracious thing, a glorious thing, an amazing thing to be able to confess the name of Christ, but yet at the same time brings with it uh, great, uh, great uh, cost. 
particularly uh, as we think about our uh, countries that we have for January. We want to pray for Afghanistan today uh, as the Taliban have assumed rule there and their desire is to uh, impose Sharia law uh, that uh, brings with it so many restrictions uh, on people and the freedom and the life that they live, but particularly we think of how it affects our brothers and sisters who are who are there in that country, who confess the name of Jesus, God, that you would protect them, give them fellowship, give them the ability to live out their Christian life well, and uh, and then also, Lord, for them to share with others why it is that they have hope. Um, and I also particularly want to pray for for women and, and young girls uh, in this context where um, they're so um, silenced and put to the side. And we think of the young, young, young girls that are taken and put into marriages, um, not of their own choosing, um, and uh, forced to, uh, to uh, bear children uh, that, uh, uh, at young ages. And uh, Lord, just, it just is so... Uh, um, contrary to what uh, we understand the word the, the value of those uh, made in your image and in male and female you made them and uh, yet the word this diminishment of uh, of of, our, of an image bearer the word is uh, so grievous so we do pray for their protection we pray the word for their elevation in worth and care and that uh, god that um, there would be um just a an awakening there in that country Uh, and lord that you might use our prayers to that end lord we pray lastly for our church and we thank you for neighborhood church we pray for we give you thanks for your provision and care of it uh, for these many uh, years almost 50 years now and we uh, look uh, to you that you would uh, make us uh, to flourish and prosper to be faithful to your word to care, Lord, for you and for your kingdom here in this part of the world. And uh, so uh, thank you for for this particular fellowship. And uh, we give you praise for all uh, that you do. And we commit all that we have prayed into your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A couple of announcements here. Um, uh, Yes, we prayed for uh, glove love. And here they are. Here are the gloves. And uh, so we have some for men and some for women. And uh, the plan is to, for an individual to take four pairs of men's and two pairs of women and women's and, and distribute them as you see, to carry them with you, to bring you with you as you go about your, your days. And as you see that need to offer them. And if they want to, you'll see the men's are maybe just a little snug uh, on my, you know, I guess maybe sort of large hand, but listen, it's going to still keep their hand warm. So um, the problem we've got is distribution to you. Uh, we were hoping to, let's say, after next Sunday service, when everybody would show up, we'd have them there. You could take them and, and go. Um, that is a challenge because right now we're on Zoom and next week we'll anticipate being on Zoom as well. So what can we do about that? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, you can come here. 
and pick some up. Uh, uh, Nick or I can be here. We'll, we, if you have a time that you can come, maybe it's after work, before work, or lunch break, uh, whenever it is, uh, then come and, and come here. We'll have them here and we'll get them into your hands. Another uh, uh, opportunity would be on a Saturday, also uh, coming here and getting them into your hands. Uh, we can do that. Also, next Sunday, um, we'll still be on Zoom, but I'm happy to hang around here for, I don't know, another hour afterwards, however long it would take you to get here and to come. And so you can pick things up, uh, pick up the gloves and take them from there. Um, yeah, so we'll send out an email that kind of just reminds that and details that, but let's get these things out, right? It's January, and we don't want to wait for another two, three, four weeks to figure out how we're going to do this. So they're here, uh, we've got them, and they can go. Now, another thing about this is they're uh, like 50% funded at this point. So the gloves have been purchased, and about 50% of the funding has come in. Um, so uh, you can either uh, send something via PayPal or or send a check. But if when you come to actually pick up some of these uh, gloves, there'll also be an opportunity for you to, to leave some cash uh, to help cover uh, the, uh, the gloves. We'll send out what the suggested amount is. Um, one last thing on this. Another thing you might consider doing is, is that um, if you, some of you live in a particular neighborhood or you know you're close by, you know, all of you have some gloves and go out together as a team and, and just walk your, do your neighborhood, pray as you go and uh, ask the Lord to lead you to places and, uh, and take them with you and distribute them. Yeah. So that's the hope. The hope, the desire is, is that people who are exposed to the elements, they're outside on the street, they're obviously don't have a secure, safe place to be, uh, that we can uh, offer this as a means by which they can at least have some little uh, more level of comfort. Yeah. Okay. Um, we are, uh, Wednesday night is our uh, quarterly prayer meeting. Um, every, uh, every quarter we will do that. And that's going to be instead of the James study, that would be on Wednesday. You'll also see that there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, half hour meetings that take place. We might as well just do those as well. And, uh, and, uh, you can just join up. It's always the same zoom link. Uh, there's folks who are kind of managing those, um, the times Monday, nine to nine 30 in the morning, Tuesday, uh, excuse me, at night on Monday, excuse me, Tuesday morning, 7.30 to 8, Wednesday at noon, 12.30 to 1, and that noon hour, and then Thursday again at night from 9 to 9.30. It's like there again in your bulletin. Um, uh, last thing, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the last Saturday, that's normally what it is, is our volunteer day for Father's Heart. Um, in the bulletin, you'll see if you have something that you want to be part of, uh, an email will be sent out, but also uh, in ahead of time, uh, you can contact Kristen, who uh, runs that, manages that for us, and let her know. If the date is different than that, I'm sure we'll find out and we'll pass it on, but it's usually the last Saturday of the month. Oh. Lord, whatever that is for, uh, give the EMTs uh, wisdom. Um, I think that is it for now. Yeah. All right. Then let us uh, close out our time with the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And uh, Nick will come and give the benediction.
presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son. for that i love that hymn i always do but especially after what we've heard today just the two opening lines of that be thou my vision so john sees a vision of the lord of his heart and then this prayer not be all else to me save that thou art don't be anything to me lord jesus except what you are but what you are let that be my vision let that be the lord of my heart what a great prayer um, Kirk just mentioned to me on the side, and I think Kristen put it in the chat, that Kirk mentioned that Saturday the 30th is actually Saturday, January 29th, is when we're doing Father's Heart. Would love for you to join us. The benediction today is taken from the opening and the closing line of the book of Revelation, kind of added together. So here, Neighborhood Church, this closing word as we go forth from the Lord Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of you. Amen. You are dismissed, Neighborhood Church. <laughs>